Welcome back to the Abstract Podcast, where we interview some of the biggest voices in legal today to uncover how they've grown in their careers, handle challenges, and become leaders within the industry. I'm Tyler Finn, Head of Community and Growth at SpotDraft, and today we have Gary Spiegel with us. Gary was most recently the SVP and general counsel at Anaplan, where he started as their first in-house counsel and over the course of nine years, scaled up the legal function to build an international legal team that had over 20 members. He supported the company through its successful 2018 IPO, which we'll talk about today. And then in 2022, worked with Toma Bravo to take them private in uh, what was and and still is uh, a pretty blockbuster transaction for the enterprise SaaS market. Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tyler. This is just a fantastic program that you've put together here, and I'm happy to be part of it. Awesome. Um, well, before we jump into the IPO and your time at Anaplan, which we will spend quite a bit of time on, uh, I wanted you to take us through the, the early days of your career. You had a pretty interesting start at the Federal Reserve, um, before going in house, uh, at Adobe, uh, tell us a little bit about the early days and what that transition to in-house life was, was like. Yeah, absolutely. I would say my early legal goals were not necessarily what you would call the traditional legal goals. So when I went to law school, I did not have any inclination to be the trial attorney or the advocate standing on the steps of the Supreme Court or the Capitol building. I mean, that was interesting, sure. But I always enjoyed the business side of things. So even going into law school, you know, after you get past your first year, you take all the, the con law, the crim law, all those basics, the evidence, that was all interesting. But once I, I got into the business law things, I took you know corporations class, bankruptcy, all those things, that really stuck with me, that bi- using law to help business not just be effective and advocate for your business clients, but to do it in a responsible way. You know, the ethical component is always there. That was always something that, that interested me. And so my actual first job out of law school, I did I never worked for a law firm. Um, I, I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank, and that was a great opportunity. They had an internship uh, in my third year of school, and I did that. And they asked me to stay on through the summer, and then they actually offered me a job. So that was my introduction, and um, it was great because that was a very rigorous and unique experience. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're very regulatory driven, but it's also a business. And I, I don't know how much people know about the Reserve Bank, but it, it's part government, part private. So on the one hand, you know, first half of the day, I could be looking at a bunch of bank merger uh, deals mm-hmm. and making sure it complies with the regulatory requirements. And then in the afternoon, I'm looking at a contract uh, to check the safety of our parking garage in the building. You know, <laughs> that's how diverse it was. But all the time, there were just great attorneys there who were mentors. And uh, and then you had the broader reserve system, which was really unique because each reserve bank kind of had its own specialty. So I got to travel around the country to different reserve banks and, and even the board of governors and work on special projects or learn about how to handle a certain issue like internal investigations or 
contract reviews. So it was really great training for a young attorney like me that wanted to understand how businesses operate. Uh, you know, that, that was a good start, but I knew the regulatory side of it wasn't quite for me because it was a little bit slow and it was very precedent oriented, very meticulous um, in a way that, you know, you would imagine a regulatory environment would be. And I actually uh, said, I just kind of said one day, I got to go to Silicon Valley because this was, you know, the time when things were really happening. This was the late 90s. And it was um, a good time to be in Silicon Valley. I mean, who wouldn't mm -hmm. want to be part of one of these startups with all the ping pong tables and parties at work and, all, you know, <laughs> um, and actually the, this was really an interesting thing for me was I actually, um, the way I got, I took the California bar just cause I knew I wanted to move, um, and, and to the Bay area. And I actually, uh, just kind of sent out a bunch of cold letters to different tech companies hmm. and, um, I didn't have any real connections and, uh, my, ultimate manager at Adobe, uh, she just liked my letter and um, wanted to talk to me more. And that, I was really thankful because at that point I had been rejected by multiple companies <laughs> and I was going to move to California no matter what. So whether I had income or not. <laughs> um, so I was really thankful that um, somebody saw something in me. And that's actually something I've held on to my, my whole career is that I, I feel like I've been lucky at different points where j different junctures where people were willing to take a chance on me without knowing, you know, my skills necessarily. Um, and I, that's just something that I'm always thankful for is that it's, it's more than just your experience, or your technical skills. It's it, ultimately we're all people and we want to work with people who have some sort of a passion at what they're doing and are willing to learn and willing to grow. And, so that's how I got involved in Adobe and the tech world. That's, that's the platform. I, I'm sure that your experience uh, working on everything from the parking lot uh, lease all the way up to multi-billion dollar transactions between banks was probably pretty attractive to, to tech companies who wanted folks to really get in, who were willing to get their hands dirty and, and take it all on. <laughs> yeah. Prepared you for startup life. Uh, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. No, it's always the, the nutshell way of, of explaining is, you know, the regulatory world is slow and meticulous and precedent based. But I mean, Silicon Valley is the exact opposite. I mean, it's everything's fast. Precedent doesn't matter. You got to do what's right for the situation because you don't have enough time to mm -hmm. do anything else. That's that's the goal is to keep things moving forward. After Adobe, where you spent about eight years or so, um, you went to MySQL and and you got some exposure there to, to pre-IPO readiness, I understand. Um, and then I think as sort of became uh, as became a little bit of a theme, you went through a transaction. Uh, Sun Microsystems acquired them. And then after that, you joined Oracle when they acquired Sun. Um, so I, I guess I, I'm really just curious um, for you, you know, telling, telling our audience a little bit about what that was like going through and continuing to sort of thrive within a business through not one, but two different acquisitions, thinking about acquisitions versus, versus IPO. Um, how did that prepare you for sort of both transitions and transactions uh, in, in your career? <laughs> yeah, I have to say that was a very unique and challenging time in my career. <laughs> I've never experienced anything quite like it before or since. And uh, 
you know, so first of all, I think it helps to understand Adobe was a very successful company. I mean, now everyone knows their success, but then they were growing like gangbusters. They weren't involved in all the media metrics and marketing metrics type of stuff that they do now, but they were successful at the consumer and enterprise products. And so just even the idea of leaving that job was a big deal. And I spent a lot of time, my wife and I talked about it. We had young kids, you know, do I really want to do that kind of career pivot? Because moving to a company like MySQL that was much smaller and they were just in a different space, that was a, a very tough decision. You know, it was a, it, it didn't have the clear upward growth path that a stable company like Adobe can provide. Um, but it was worth you know, in hindsight, I think we just decided it was worth the pivot because that's the it, it, it having some passion for what you do counts for a lot, you know, and and I just wanted to try something different. So MySQL provided that in a couple of ways. I mean, number one, there was that IPO potential. And for me, you know, going back to my kind of business oriented legal framework, that was the ultimate way of understanding a business was, I mean, part of the IPO is just picking it apart and seeing how it all fits together and how you market it to people. So that was really a great potential experience. And the other part was there was this burgeoning world of, of the open source software and, you know, that how to make that a business. That was also interesting. And so MySQL was on the forefront of that. Um, so that was kind of a cutting edge thing. And those two together were very enticing. By the time I got there, they were pretty well along in the IPO planning. So I, had, I didn't have a lot of impact on that side of it. Um, my impact was mainly, hey, let's keep the revenue coming in so the investors want to <laughs> participate, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I worked. It, but it was great because that, that was the first experience I had where I was working with the principals, the C-level people. I mean, I'd be on the phone with the CRO with a, with a big client you know, just trying to make sure we get them over the finish line. So I was part of the sales team at that point, you know, not just a lawyer. And that felt really good. And the other thing that, about MySQL that really stuck with me was our, Martin Mikos was our uh, CEO. Um, and he's just, I think he had a great approach to a team like MySQL. I mean, we had three or 400 people when we were bought by son and, but his approach was always, we're in this together. We're a family. I mean, literally he treated us all like family. Um, and we were scattered around the world. It was a remote first org. And so that his whole approach was invest in whatever you can to keep people connected. And that stuck with me, you know, doesn't matter where you are in the world. You know, now it seems kind of commonplace. You got to, solve for remote work possibilities, but it wasn't that common back then. And so um, building that, and then you, he also had this concept of everybody can participate in the, the discussion, but once we make a decision, you got to fall in line. It, you can dissent all you want, you know, before that, but as a company, we got to be in this together. So once we go forward, we're all in it together. And that was great. I, that's something I've used as kind of a leadership principle I want all the voices, but we got to act as one once we move forward. So that was kind of the framework. And then when Sun came and bought us, you know, that that took away the IPO. You know, that took away, that added a lot of uncertainty to my own career trajectory. So at that juncture, you know, I wasn't sure I made the right decision jumping from a stable company like Adobe. But 
then when Oracle bought us, that was a whole other thing because, you know, the economy, that was the 2008 economic upheaval. Uh, You know, I think Sun, they lost uh, a quarter of their customers overnight because of the financial difficulties. You know, so that was a very challenging time. Then Oracle had all these regulatory issues. So, you know, we were joking. There was such a long waiting period for the, the clearance process on the regulatory side that um, we would joke on the MySQL team, like, you know, we made t-shirts, two acquisitions, two years, a uh, billion dollar company, you know, it's just <laughs> like you, at that point you could only laugh. Uh-huh. Um, you would never plot that out for your career. Um, but I have to say, you know, that was a formative experience for me because one of my uh, managers at Sun, um, he was very, calm, level-headed guy all the time. I mean, anything could happen. And he was just calm and level-headed. And he just said, hey, this is Silicon Valley. These things happen. You know, it, you you may not be prepared for it, but you have to know it's going to happen. And um, it's just the way it works. So it's no big deal. You know, it's just another day in Silicon Valley. And that's another one that I always try and explain to people, particularly when we get into these large M&A things like the I, or even an IPO or a Toma Bravo type of acquisition, you know, those things, yeah, it seems like a big deal and it is, you got to do all the work behind it. But the fact is that's how Silicon Valley works. That's how, and as lawyers, we have a great opportunity to be part of these formative events in a company's history. And that to me was really impactful because once you take the emotion out of it to the degree you can, um, these things are just very intellectually satisfying, very, yeah, they're very professionally satisfying events. They're just things you can really learn from. In some ways, I mean, now that now that we're sort of like seeing your career as a whole, it, it almost traced some of the booms and busts of of Silicon Valley and uh, and you know many of the sort of largest companies um, over the past twenty years or so, twenty five years. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, Oracle was uh, probably the biggest company I've ever worked for, maybe the biggest company I ever do work for. (laughs) They're just the big one. And, um, you know, I have to say that wasn't, you know, I never sought out working for Oracle, but I got to say, you know, I and also they were a direct competitor with MySQL being in the database world. Um, So I always had kind of like keep them at arm's length type of attitude. But (laughs) having said that, you know, they do what they do very well. And being there for the brief period of time, year, year and a half that I was there, I still felt like I learned a lot. Uh, they, they know how to execute on business strategy. Uh, they allowed a lot of independence. Um, they were, you know, and then also even learning from a company like Sun, they, Sun had one of the best cultural environments, I think, of any company in the history of Silicon Valley. They just they really allowed people to be creative and do their work and they trusted and empowered people and they did it in a very responsible and ethical way. You know, like they really embedded that in their culture. So I think those two things together really kind of fed into that. Uh, Some of those lessons that you pull from any experience, any tough experience, even though it was two years of pure turmoil, you know, from a professional standpoint, it was a good learning experience, and that level of discomfort is what breeds growth, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, set you up well for then really building the building the whole function at at Anaplan. Um, let's let's jump into that. 
what what drove you to to join Anaplan and and tell us a little bit about the sort of progression of your role there because it went from being you as the first legal hire all the way up to a, a twenty person team. Sure. Well, there was an intermediary step between Oracle and Anaplan, which is important because I worked at a company named LiveOps and I got to be their cloud person, their cloud attorney. They didn't have anyone else. They, they had kind of two businesses. One was a very contractor staffing oriented business and the other was a technology cloud business. And so I got to be their attorney for the cloud business, which was great. It was like being a mini GC or a mini AGC, you know, something where that was my baby and I got to look after it <laughs> and watch it grow. So I, I really worked hard on trying to figure out how to do that correctly. You know, it like how to be the person that can make it work and help my business teams be a good business partner. And along the way, I met a VP of finance there um, who uh, Alan Priest was his name. And he and I hit it off. Just we were just, yeah, I had a good relationship personally. And then he left and he told me, he's like, hey, I'm going to go to this company, Anaplan. And I'm like, what's the Anaplan? You know, he says, oh, it's 30, 40 people. You know, I'm just going to try it out. I'll be their first CFO. And uh, I, he explained what it did. And I really, it just kind of went over my head. You know, I said, that sounds like a big finance thing, business planning, you know, optimization, all that uh, in the cloud. And so I kind of put that in the back burner. I was happy for him as a friend, um, even though I didn't fully understand. And six months later or so, you know, the com our, our company was kind of they were just not doing a whole lot of new growth and uh, PE firms were sniffing around all that, you know, just to try and put it in a new direction. I thought this is a good time to just see what's out in the market. So I called him just to see what was going on. What as a CFO, I figured he had a lot of insight into how the market was panning out. And it turned out that as a CFO of a small company, he was doing all the legal work, you know? Ah. <laughs> so he basically was, when I called, he was ready to hand over <laughs> the legal work to someone else. You and were his so, savior, or at yeah, least the exactly. savior of his, his, his weekends. <laughs> so a lot of it is just timing. Look for the frustrated CFOs that you may have a job opportunity. <laughs> Um, so I called him up and I just, I was going to ask him if he'd be a reference for me. He said, Oh, you know, you should come here and just talk to a few people. And so I met with him, he sold it. I met with the CEO. I think the CEO was kind of like, yeah, this is probably a good time to get legal. I don't really know what legal does or how, <laughs> where exactly they fit in, but I know you can help us with the contracts. Mm -hmm. And I, but I really hit it off with the COO and he and I had great conversations about, you know, the, what I wanted out of a, a, a legal position, what he thought was good for the company. And um, so that that went really well. And so they just I think they just were happy to have somebody that cared enough to be part of it, you know, um, that that was responsible enough and was willing to jump in. And that was another one where I'm not sure I looking in hindsight, I. I don't think I understood exactly what I was getting myself into. You know, it, it was a 160 person company. Um, I only, I knew the one person. So that relationship touch point counted for a lot um, just because of the trust factor and wanting to dive in all the way. Cause I figured if my friend is willing to dive in all the way, I should be willing to dive in too. Um, 
And so that that's where it started. That was the thing. I was the first in-house attorney. I had no general counsel background. You know, I had managed like legal for a group, a larger group, but didn't have a large team or anything like that. I had a handful of reports here and there. So this was, I, I didn't have aspirations right away of being like this GC person at a public company. It was a goal that I thought I had. Um, but it started very small and it was very focused, like keep revenue coming in the door. And then slowly people asked me, hey, you're a lawyer. What do you think of this or that? You know, and, and it kind of st steamrolled from there. And actually, it's funny because uh, I look back in one of my early meetings, kind of all hands meetings, we were sitting around a table and, you know, there's like 40 people in the one big room in the small San Francisco office, you know, 30 or 40 people um, locally. And, and somebody looked at me and these are all like 80% of them are 20 something first time, you know, startup people. And um, they're like, what exactly do you do? But they did it in a very, you know, in a caring way. It wasn't like, hey, curious. You can be a, right. It was like, no, really, I just don't know what lawyers do. I've, you know, I'm just fresh out of school, basically. And I don't, I've never seen a company operate like this before. So that was a good one because that, that's another one that stuck with me is that you really have to be able to explain what you do to the right audience, you know, because the way I explain to that audience is a little bit different than I would explain to a seasoned CFO that comes in to help you prep for an IPO, which is what happened years later, or how I'd explain it to the PE buyer, or the M&A buyer, after you've been acquired, you know, or when you're in the process of the acquisition. Knowing your constituency was really important. And um, I had to really evolve the way I described the role and the position and my role, because, you know, as you take on more responsibility, there's just different, different ways of showing your value to the company. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to, to those sort of transactions or different stakeholders. Um, and just before we move on from the beginning of your time at, at Anaplan, I think now you have maybe um, some slightly more evolved thoughts on when there's when it's the right time to enter a company as their first legal hire or their first GC. For folks out there who might be evaluating an opportunity like that, can you share sort of your framework or, or your thoughts now uh, on, on when the right time to join is? Yeah, I think for me, one of the things I, I didn't necessarily do things in a what I would call a, a playbook or a roadmap for anyone else. Because for me, you know, for I, I, I was really, like I said, I was willing to jump in all the way. Do I mean, there were days, you know, on with a U.S. client or EMEA client in the morning, U.S. client afternoon, Asia Pac client evening, you can only do that for so long before you're completely burnt out. And so depending on where you are in your career and what your goals are and where the company is, you need to decide, you know, how are you going to get that level of work done? Because that's how all the startups are. And so I think the right time to enter really depends on what you're willing to put into it as far as that. Are you going to be more of like the executive strategic advisor type of you know leader or are you going to be the hands-on get dirty be the one that closes every contract type of leader there's a spectrum somewhere along there and you need to i think individuals need to decide what are they willing to do for their career like what's the right thing for them 
at that stage of their career, where are their skills, where are their interests, and then match that to the right company. That's that's and and the good thing is that there's companies all over the spectrum. You'll have um, some companies that are really just looking for somebody with a lot of experience to drop in and kind of pull the ship together because they, they've been operating maybe a little more loosely. And then there's companies that they really don't understand what a GC is because they don't have, they're not at that stage where they see the longer term vision, but they do know they need some work done. Maybe it's just to save money in house, or maybe it's to have more immediate access or a better relationship on the legal side with people who truly understand their business. So I think evaluating all of that, it's, there's no clear answer, but the other good thing to remember is, you know, you can get involved somewhere on that spectrum. And as long as you've kind of understood the values of the leadership team, whether you're reporting to the CFO or the CEO and where they expect the legal function to grow and what their goals are, to some degree, you can kind of coach them on where you think you the role should be. And I think that's important too. Don't just assume that they know what where this should go, because in my experience, most of the time people don't like going back to the the question I had, what do you do? You know, like that even at the executive level, you know, you might have a first time founder who's trying to figure out how to staff a team, an executive team or a, or a func- all different functions. Legal is probably lowest on their list of what they understand or what they really care about as far as having their hands dirty. So that I guess that's a kind of a long winded way of saying it really is up to the individual and the company's needs. To, and you got to find that meeting point mm-hmm. in the middle. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, 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 and the, even, even maybe with a more seasoned CEO, unless they've been in a highly regulated environment before, or they've, they've really seen how important legal is to closing, um, closing deals, or, you know, they probably understand the least about what a, a GC does because maybe they've been a CFO before they've been a banker or they've been a salesperson or they've built products. Um, they probably have not, although these days it's changing, right? There are GCs who are becoming CEOs for sure. Um, they probably have not though been a, a general counsel before I, I would say, uh, it's the least likely of the other members of the C-suite. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think, there's, if you're the first attorney in, in-house, that's one thing. If you're coming in with an established team, like maybe you're layering in on top because the company's getting ready for IPO, or maybe it's already a public company and you're trying to uh, come in and, you know, you, you're going to focus a lot on the governance and you may be less on some of the day-to-day operations as your first step. So there's a whole, just a whole spectrum of things and it, it's it's hard to say for any particular case. You really have to evaluate it. You know, like I said, it's your own interests, where you want your career to be, and where the company needs help. Um, so it's just all over the place. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about both those transactions that that you went through at at Anaplan. The first uh, was the the 2018 IPO. Um, Anaplan raised uh, about 260 million dollars as a part of that transaction, um, and it occurred uh, sort of like right before the markets took a nosedive. So it was a sort of a very successful transaction at the right time. <laughs> um, and then uh, in 2022, the the company I think is folks know was was taken private by uh toma bravo um so 
let's let's start with the IPO. Uh, I want you to take us behind the scenes a little bit about how both of these transactions came to be. Yeah, the IPO number one, it was a great experience. That was the that was what I wanted have always wanted to do. Uh, so having that out there, that motivation of basically living your professional dream, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of nerdy, um, that that's a great motivation because there's a lot of work that goes into the IPO prep. And it we had actually kind of done like a shadow, you know, just kind of a sketch out before we even officially decided to do an IPO, just to see what would it look like? You know, what are the team uh, contributions that we would need? Um, you know, cause you have to be ready on the accounting side, the legal side, uh, there's just a whole range of things. And so we had looked at that and I remember, um, thinking, well, I don't know if we're ready right now. And I think we weren't really ready, but it was good to do the exercise. And so when we were ready, you know, we, we hired a, a CFO with prior experience. So that number one was a big catalyst that brought, since I didn't have prior IPO experience, that brought a sense of urgency and, hey, look at my team in a more serious way. I have to really be responsible about how I'm staffing, what the needs are, because immediately we were talking about, you know, this is several months before the IPO, we were talking about what are our earnings calls going to look like? I had never been part of an earnings call, you know, directly before that. So, this was a major learning curve. So part of it was me absorbing as much as I could, going out, finding whatever I could, talking to my mentors. You know, we had great outside counsel. Uh, Gunderson Detmer was our chief uh, corporate counsel. So they, um, you know, having their support really helped me as a first-time IPO GC. And all that together, you know, there was, I finally reached a point where, you know, I was able to be the person that could help the executive team understand where is this going? You know, what do we need to watch out for? Let's be responsible about how we communicate our business. You know, there's all those little things. So that's, that was kind of, there was some tense moments I'd say where you have people who, who, who haven't been through an IPO and they're saying, well, we need to be more aggressive in how we pitch this or that. And, you know, on the legal side, I, I would have to say there were times where I felt like I didn't have, since I didn't have the experience, I didn't have the same weight of credibility, you know, to say, no, that's not really appropriate. But I knew I had to go in and a lot of it was one-on-one -on -one conversations to say, hey, this is how it really plays out. Here's some of the things that have happened in the past. Here's re reasons it's not worth being too aggressive on this or that, but maybe we can accommodate, you know, some of this when we describe the business in this way, you know, so all those things they're really relationship based. They're not necessarily skills based. And that's what I found throughout my career in any of these really difficult transactions. There's a certain element where you don't have time to get up to speed. So you hope you have kind of a minimal understanding, but being an expert in the business and having good relationships with the key people, that counts for a lot more in my book. You know, being able to think quickly about what's best for the business how do I get my my uh, executive teammates on board with this so that we're all aligned and there's not going to be any you know miscommunications? Though that's what I learned really quick was more important. I could always go to outside counsel. 
um, for some technical advice. And we actually hired a, a really strong, uh, more than strong, I mean, she was just excellent um, SEC reporting governance person before the IPO, who was able to come in and do all those things that I had not done myself, like really ask the right questions of people, you know, how you set up the equity programs in a way that you're going to report on it correctly, those types of things. So there's the technical expertise, and then there's the influence side and relationship side. And I think GCs need to have a little bit of both, but I think tilting towards the relationship side helped a lot in, in my experience with the Anaplan IPO. And one follow-up there for you, I guess, um, going a little bit back to your, your thought around being more of a strategic advisor versus really sort of getting your hands dirty. Uh, who was running sort of the, the operational aspect of the IPO, keeping all the trains on time? Did that live in legal or was that under finance with your CFO? How did, how did that come to be? It was legal. And the joke was, <laughs> I mean, my team, the people who knew about the IPO, they knew my life was just checklists at that point. <laughs> it was like a NASA mission. You know, you just run through the checklist every day. But it took some thought to put the checklist together, and it was constantly evolving. But that was literally my life. Like every day I'd say, Here are the, you know, here's the portion of the checklist that needs to get done. And that could involve – and I had separate checklists that rolled into – you know, you, you, you have to have a project management mentality. And that's actually one area where I wish we had invested more was an actual project manager – we kind of shared the function between legal and finance, but legal took the biggest brunt of it. Um, but I'd say, you know, that was that was how we got it done. Um, so I'd have a checklist for all the HR matters, a checklist for exec comp, a checklist for S1 related things. So that's pretty much how we we got that done. Tell us a little bit more also about the the take private then and, and how that came to be and uh was it the same for you? Like, was it this, like was were relationships the most important thing, or did it did it feel a little different than the IPO? Um, yeah, what was that like? It was definitely different than the IPO. It, you know, just the nature of being acquired. So first of all, you know, a lot of these cases, just Anaplan is a perfect example. A lot of these purchase cases where you're on the, you know, the selling side of the equation. Um, it comes because there's a perception that something's going wrong. You know, that's a lot of times the way those happen. And so in our case, we did have some shareholders that were asking questions about, hey, why aren't you optimizing this or that? Um, and so that, that was kind of the backdrop. And even before that, even aside from all that, we were doing our annual strategic planning type of processes. And that's, you always have to have on the table you know, if you don't meet your targets at the end of whatever period, what does that mean for the company? What's your backup plan? What are the investors going to do? So all that, you know, that was just being good company practice. We always had like some sense of what are the different scenarios that could play out here? And so by the time we got to the M&A uh, or the take private transaction, you know, that was we knew that was a realistic strategic option. It wasn't like a big surprise that that could be on the table. And so part of the, so then the question was, you know, is that good or bad for the company? Well, it has to be good for the company. Otherwise, you know, the board shouldn't approve it. And so that was really the driver was making sure that everyone was doing the things to make sure 
the company was and the investors were getting the best deal they could. That's a different mentality. I mean, obviously, the IPO, you want the best uh, outcome for your investors. But the assumption is there's going to be growth, you know, continued growth. And that's a big assumption. Whereas in the take private side, of course, your purchasers want growth, but it's not the broad public markets. So it feels a little different. It's just you're, you're targeting a single buyer, you know, rather than um, the mass public set of potential investors. Uh, it's less of a marketing thing. So the approach, I think, was a little bit different. And not so much that it wasn't, you know, about selling the business and the relationships, but it was more that we need to make sure we're describing the business correctly, doing the due diligence, making sure that the valuations of the company are are really on point. You know, it's just it's just a slightly different mentality. And yeah, and, and you're probably thinking a little bit less about sort of life after the transaction than you are during the, the IPO as well. Yeah, it's really about making sure that when the shareholders vote, that they have all the information they need to make an informed decision and you're making the best recommendation mm -hmm. um, because that's the end. They're going to get their payout after that. And that that's the end of that relationship with those investors. So it's just a different way of looking at things. With, with that as a, a sort of backdrop for, for how your uh, time at Anaplan uh, evolved, Let's let's talk a little bit about the sort of like operational aspects or, or principles um, that that helped get you to the IPO and helped get you to the take private. Um, one of the big pieces was you were able to build out a team of about twenty folks. How did you approach prioritizing and, and hiring those folks and and really set them up for success within the wider Anaplan organization? Yeah, so you know I mentioned in the beginning. I was, since I was the only person, I was doing a lot. So I would say the first hires were really geared around keeping me sane. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> it, was, it was a very interesting set of, or a very easy set of criteria for, uh, <laughs> I, I don't need to do this anymore and I desperately need someone to do it. So let's hire right. that person. <laughs> right. And so actually one of the first um, hires, since we were a broad international based business, even as mm -hmm. a 150 to 200 person company, we had offices in 12 or 14 places. Wow. So having an EMEA understanding an Asia pack understanding and being able to do close to real time business there, uh, was important. So one of the first hires was an attorney, um, who could handle the EMEA business, um, and we actually hired him in uh, in Minnesota first because there was a still bulk was um, was uh, U.S. but we had enough EMEA so that we figured the time zone was a little better and then we hired an EMEA attorney after that um, and so that was kind of how we the first thing was very revenue contract based mm -hmm. um, so it was very I would say reactive I didn't have a great strategy there I'll. I'll just to be candid, I, in hindsight, I'd probably think about doing things a little bit different in the sense that I think more about, which I did, I think, at the next stage of hiring, more about multi-purpose players, you know, because then you're getting into the series D and E and F type of uh, scenario where you're not really sure exactly what you're going to need, but you need people who are flexible and can react quickly and, and are willing to jump in on unknown things. 
Um, so for me, that was really important at that stage. And then as we got closer to the IPO, I knew that we needed specific skill sets. I knew we needed somebody who was dedicated uh, or knew a lot about privacy, knew a lot about product development, knew a lot about SEC reporting. You know, those types of things became more important. Um, so that's on the skill side. But I also really tried as a, as a manager with a growing team to be conscious of the fact that my experience in the past was I, I was very fortunate to have great managers along the way, people who were very understanding and forgiving if I made a mistake, um, and uh, people who were interested in my growth and my team and the team's growth as a whole. So that stuck with me. I always had, like, for instance, one of my managers at Adobe, he was always, every time we would talk about our weekly accomplishments and goals, he always would say, well, what did you get out of it? You know, did you, was it something that personally made you happy or what do you want to accomplish? It will be a personal achievement for you. You know, that was always part of it. Um, and I appreciated that. It wasn't just, here's the corporate objective. What are you doing? A, B, and C. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a mutual relationship. It's not a one-way thing. And then also at Adobe, I got to credit them. They created the most fun environment. I mean, the group there, we had these amazing offsite, you know, could just be go out to dinner or it could be, we had a couple of sites where we went up to the Seattle office, you know, as a group for the, the team I was on. Um, things like that just created this bond, this culture, this closeness, even though geographically we were spread out a little bit. Um, it just felt like we were family in a lot of ways. It just felt so comfortable to work with that group. And I always wanted to recreate that uh, to the best I could. I don't feel like I was as successful at it as they were. You know? <laughs> um, but I think that was another thing was really understanding that I, I always would prefer hiring for people that make the workplace feel like a better place to be than just focus on the skills. Like make it where people want to be part of it, whether that's remote or in person, you know, that's, it doesn't really matter. You got to invest in building that kind of cultural tightness in your team. So those were things that I really, I probably uh, thought about that on the later side, particularly as we got into the public company side, because once you get into the public company side, I felt like it was more we also had to focus on redundancy or uh, ability to scale at the right time, but not overspend on our hiring or like the hiring became much more tactical about, but you still have to hire the right fits, you know, for your team. But it was really like, you're more, I felt like we were more constrained because we were a public company and the GNA, you know, spend thresholds become more important. Building on that actually, uh, and those spend thresholds becoming important, uh, Tell us a little bit about how you think about the value of legal to an organization. And I think you have kind of a three-pronged approach here. Um, yeah, tell us tell us about your approach to communicating the value of legal or building the value of legal within the business. Sure. You know, I, I think going back again, I mean, to that ultimate question, what do you do? You know, like people, I think people expect the answer to that question to be, I review contracts, I handle legal disputes, I look at intellectual property uh, filings. Um, you know, those are the traditional things people think of lawyers doing. 
So there's a certain level of things that when you go into any organization, they're going to expect you as a legal counsel to do. And those things you got to nail, you got to get them done efficiently. You got to take the low hanging fruit off the table right away. Um, Make sure you're not wasting your time because that's what you're probably going to be graded on in a very abstract sense because people don't really understand beyond that. You know, they're going to say, if you have a big dispute, oh, legal must not have handled that correctly if there's a big dispute. Or if the contracts are slowing down, a lot of times they're going to say, well, the legal process is taking too long. Now, you may be able to point elsewhere and say, no, let's look at our process and it's actually slowing down at the customer or whatever. But it's hard to, if you don't have a well-functioning process and good relationships with people and good rules of engagement on all those kind of table stakes things, it's very hard to build an aura that legal is your partner and your friend and we're here to help everybody. You know, So that's table stakes. Then I think the next level is where you really get into those relationships of understanding strategically what the business needs. And that's where actually I think it gets more interesting for the legal team because that's where you can say, hey, I see that the HR team is, you know, that they're handling things a certain way. I can, if strategically, if I partner with them, we can do this in a way that really eliminates our, our talent acquisition risk or something like that, you know, where you're starting to see the next level. It's not just responding to legal issues as they come. And that's where sometimes you even see GCs or heads of legal they take on, it could be like a compliance role. It could be a head of HR role. It could be an operational role, um, you know, ESG to, or social. That beca- That's become a little more common. Um, I think, you know, corporate secretary is an obvious one. The governance stuff, that happens very frequently. So that's where you're providing value in a way that people wouldn't call traditional legal, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So th- that's kind of the next layer. But the one that I think people forget and they don't give, even on the legal side, I don't think we give enough credit, is all these superpowers that that we have as attorneys where, first of all, we have the attorney-client privilege. I mean, people can come to you and talk about the worst stuff. (laughs) And uh, barring a handful of really, you know, corner cases, I mean, it's protected. You know, it's like... That's a huge advantage for candor in an organization to to be able to think through the most difficult issues with a trusted advisor. You know, that's amazing. And I don't think enough people take advantage of that. Or even it could just be having an analysis of what the risk is. I think the attorneys can do a lot of that in an environment that is not going to put you on the front page of, you know, the the whistleblower website, you know? Right. Um, So there's a lot of opportunity there for, and I don't think people think of that. Like I said, even on the legal team, I don't think a lot of times we encourage our clients to take advantage of that enough, the brainstorming and the thinking through the possibilities of how to avoid pitfalls and maximize. But then you've got this connective tissue where I think the legal department is a hub for understanding what's going on on one side of the org and how that aligns or conflicts with the other side of the org and that it can be a clearinghouse for those things because they even though those two groups on the other sides of the uh, project they may meet quarterly or monthly 
they may not talk about the same things that the legal team is seeing, you know, because the legal team may have the operational impact of it. They see it in a slightly different way or the compliance impact. So those are just, I think when you go back and you're trying to describe the value, you can measure metrics on things like contract throughput or, you know, how many disputes you quashed um, or what's the, how much did you have to pay to get out of the dispute? Those are kind of more easy to monetize or, or quantify. Then you've got the other things that maybe you're going in more traditional business units. So if you are head of HR, you probably have a lot of metrics that are easy to show they flow into company strategy metrics. But when you get into these more superpower types of things, those are harder to quantify. And in fact, you know, going back to how, that issue of how do you answer the question when people say, what do you do? You know, what do you say? Let's say you're on the selling side of the M&A. How do you explain that intangible superpower stuff with a connective glue between the different groups? It, it's unless somebody understands it from past experience or wants to see the value in it, they probably can't quantify it and they're not going to assign a value to it. So that's where the relationships come in. You want people coming in and saying, well, legal really helps us with X, Y, and Z, you know, and it's just, it's, so it's, it's, again, it goes back to relationships, having those solid relationships with all your business partners to make sure that people feel like things are working well. If it's working well, don't, don't, break it up. Don't try and fix it. You mentioned uh, a little bit about the sort of idea of using legal as a, a springboard into some of these other more operational roles. Um, I'm curious how you go about doing that um, and, and, and thinking about it from sort of like a career growth perspective, uh, both maybe for the GC, but also how you've helped other members of your team um, who wanted to expand and grow in different areas of the law or different operational areas um, where they didn't have a lot of experience before. Yeah, so one of the things I've always wanted to enable on the team is people to feel free to express their their desired growth areas. Mm-hmm. So that I think that's important. So if you can't express it, it probably won't happen. So it has to... So I think the job as a legal leader is to create an environment where people understand that that's accepted and it's something that you're willing to invest in. You know, to some degree, it, you I think it should be part of any corporate culture, this idea, because you want people to grow. You want people who've mastered a certain thing to be able to bring that expertise into something adjacent to it because that's better for everybody. Um, and I do think you see really well-functioning companies allow those types of growth paths within the company. Um, so I want to do it on on a micro level within the legal world if I can. And I think part of it could be working on a special project or could be partnering with a specific business unit that they don't usually partner with. But enabling that to happen and getting the agreement on the executive level or the management level between the two teams mm-hmm. is important because you may not have the same level of efficiency and you know, if if you've got somebody who's not used to doing a certain task, but I think fortunately legal people generally can ramp up on stuff pretty quickly. That's part of the job. (laughs) So I'm not worried about that other than I don't want anybody to think, Hey, the legal efficiency is suffering because of the swap and teammates. 
you know, that I don't think that should be a barrier to anything because ultimately I, I'm confident that the people that we're hiring on our team are capable of handling just about anything. Um, so that I think it all comes from that culture of wanting people to succeed and wanting people to grow and then mapping that to the corporate needs. A few, uh, a few last questions for you uh, on your, your time at Anaplan and, and sort of general approach to, uh, to leading legal teams. We've talked quite a bit today about relationship building and, and how important those relationships with other stakeholders within the business are. Um, there's a little bit of a flip side there, though, too, that we haven't touched on, which is that people are constantly coming to legal, um, there could be sort of like a hand-holding phenomenon, or this could actually become too much or, or a drain, right, uh, uh, on, on the resources that maybe should be spent uh, improving an HR process as opposed to uh, giving advice on every single contract, let's say. Um, so how have you approached that balance um, with, with other stakeholders in the business? Well, I think... I've learned a lot over the last few years on that specific question and particularly having a PE buyer, you know, it has really highlighted the efficiency type of argument and how to do the legal function in an efficient way. Um, Because since we're not contributing to the, you know, to the revenue directly, Everything is, you got to look at it from a cost perspective and efficiency perspective to some degree. I don't particularly think that's the most productive way of looking at it, but Mm -hmm. you got to look at it that way because that's how businesses evaluate things. So when I look at it from that perspective, I want to make sure that I have rules of engagement of some kind or service level agreements with everybody, every one of our constituent leaders in the groups that we support. Hopefully it doesn't have to get to the point where it's written down in excruciating detail. Maybe it's just a couple of bullet points on here's the service we're provided. Here's this, here's what you bring as the business unit when you come to legal. But sometimes it does have to get down to that detailed third level bullet, you know, type of stuff. Um, or detailed intake form, whatever it is. And so it's really case by case. In the, I think it's also helpful to look for champions, people who say, hey, this relationship with legal works really well because we do X, Y, and Z, and have them be the, your advocate in other groups that are less receptive to show that, hey, this is possible to have a really well-functioning relationship um, that, that, where you get what you need in the most efficient and effective way and being true partners. And then I think for the ones that are the more handholding or they don't, you know, there's some element there where you really have to look at the responsibilities and understand what's best for the organization, the company as a whole. And one of the things that I found, you know, we talked about some of these hidden superpower things, the connected, particularly the connective glue type of stuff. Um, on the one hand, legal can be extremely effective there. On the other hand, that can be evidence of a dysfunctional way of handling an issue. You know, if legal is taking on too much of that connective activity, maybe that's just a lack of communication between the right parties. 
you know, or maybe it's it's not understanding this. Those parties are not understanding the strategic objective of the company, so they're kind of going at it two different ways. Um, those are things where you can highlight the problem as a legal advisor and help people work through it. And it may end up where the legal team either gets more involved, or in a lot of cases, they may not be involved at all. And so that's all. That's part of what what's best for your organizational client and. How do you make sure that you're being as efficient in providing those services to your your company? So that's the way I look at it. It's really it's a case by case depending on how receptive and how effective the different business units are to the way you're providing legal support. And it's a relationship. It's a communication. It's not like legal will do X, Y, and Z. Do you agree or not agree? It can't be like that, you know. And and in some cases, it may require a heated discussion at the executive team level to say, no, I need to have this. Otherwise, I can't achieve my objective. You know, it, those conversations have to happen at some point. And you hope you have that relationship where it's done in a very productive and you know effective way. One of the things that I, that I like about our conversation um, is that you've highlighted some of the superpowers that, that lawyers have around maybe what would be considered more traditional legal work. Um, there's also been you know, a theme on this podcast and a lot of others around how uh, GCs and, and lawyers, uh, legal leaders, can take on more operational roles over time. So I'm curious for, for your thoughts on what the future of, of in-house legal roles looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to one of my core beliefs about law, or at least that drove me, was that it really is important to look at what your client needs and serve them effectively, make them as impactful and, and effective as possible. That's my role. So whether I do that as a lawyer in the traditional core legal work, or I'm asked to extend a little bit to fill gaps or to be a leader in a different function, that's okay with me. And I think legal training and legal experience is a great platform, a great foundation, a great springboard to apply really good strategic and analytical thinking to almost any discipline. And the nature of our roles is that we do have to get into the nuts and bolts of so many different things that it's not that far away from becoming a functional, functionally literate in a lot of different subject matter. You know, we may not be experts, but I think we can get through the day-to-day stuff and ask the experts when we need to. We're good at that. So this the next step then, it's not so much about the skills that the legal professionals have. I think it's it's more about, number one, what do you want to do? Where, how do you want to make an impact as an individual in an organization? If your ultimate goal is to be CEO, that's I think that's possible, but you have to really triangulate that path. If your ultimate goal is COO or head of HR or you know overseeing the cybersecurity program, whatever it is, those are things that, my, in my experience, it's hard to drop in fresh on those. You really have to build trust and then kind of seize the opportunity when it arises in that organization that you're with, the one that already trusts you. I think that's the easiest way. It's, it's opportunistic. It's not. So for instance, I don't think necessarily a chief operating officer role is going to say prior legal experience is highly valued. But if you already have a trusted relationship with a 
company with a, a principal at a company that's looking for a chief operating officer and they know your work as a GC, it's easy to explain why your work as a GC would fit well in that role because they trust you. They already know that you deliver and they know your breadth of experience. So I think that's how I look at it. And so when I look at the future of legal, I think a lot of it is there's a lot of talk about expanding the legal role to this or that, um, being more strategic. Yes, you can be strategic, but I don't think that has to mean doing more than legal. It can if you want it to. And it probably requires some level of flex into different areas. But you don't have to give up your legalness if you don't want to. You know, I, I don't think that ever uh, is required. And and ultimately, I don't think you want to spread yourself out too thin either. You know, and I always am impressed at people who are able to do the GC job, be head of security, be head of HR. You know, all these different roles. That's balancing those things seems very difficult to me. I've done it. I've, I have had security as part of the legal team and I enjoyed it. Um, but if it, there's some point where if it takes you away from your core you know, mission, you got to ask yourself, is this best for my client? Is this best for the company? Um, and then you have to ask yourself professionally, where do I want to put my time? Do I want to spend it more on the legal side or more on the business unit side? I love that. Um, last question. You left Anaplan last November. What's next for you? <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd have the answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, I've been enjoying time with my family. So I have my oldest daughter is going off to college uh, in, a, in a month or so here. So that's my number one goal right now is to see her off, get her settled. After that, you know, I am interested in taking on another GC CLO type of role. I think, uh, that transformation that companies get from being that stage where they're just kind of trying to figure stuff out to where they say, I want to be a public company. I want to make a big impact on the world. I've got something that looks really potentially impactful. You know, I just need to scale it. When they get to that stage, I think I can help a lot. I really enjoy that process. That's exciting. I mean, that's when you see the fire in people and, and you can really see hey, you're headed somewhere that's really going to help people. So I, I don't have a specific industry in mind or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm open to that, but I like that fire that you see in, the, in companies when they reach that phase. Well, listeners, uh, if, if uh, you've got a, an opening for a GC or CLO type, uh, type role, you couldn't do better than hiring Gary. So uh, reach out to him or reach out to me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and sharing all of your insights. Uh, and listeners, we'll see you next time on The Abstract. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs>